My grandmother's been dead for a number of years, but I can still remember her very well. She was a very unique person, and I can vividly remember things she said and did all these years after she's passed away. Uh, I remember her, for instance, for uh, making great yeast rolls. I mean, she'd, she'd make big yeast rolls bigger than your fist, and they were really good, and she was famous for those yeast rolls that she would make. Uh, she was also famous for wearing hats to church. She had this one great big tall white hat, and it had a huge feather sticking out of the top of it, and she wore that almost every Sunday. When I think of my grandmother, I picture her with that big white hat on and that feather sticking out the top of it. Um, she was also, um, I also remember her for things that she told us grandkids when we were growing up. I think I have related to you before that from the time I was a fairly young boy, when we were leaving her house, she'd always say, you be a good boy. And remember, always marry a good Christian girl. <laughs> and she was telling me that when I still thought girls were yucky, you know, and had no interest or, th or thought of marriage. But she felt it important to, to instill that lesson in us as we were growing up. I remember my grandmother, and, she, and, and, and her influence, I think, still... Uh, is sustained in me all these many years later, even after she's dead. What about you? Can, can you remember someone who in your life uh, had a very strong influence, and though they have maybe died long ago, you still remember them, and you remember some of the things they said and did, and their example and their influence that they had on you? Probably so. I think each of us can think of people along those lines. Today in our lesson, we want to talk about a Bible character. In fact, one of the oldest Bible characters whose life and example and influence still continues to stand out and speak to us today. We want to base our lesson this morning upon the expression made in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, about Abel. Hebrews 11, verse 4 says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. He's dead. He's been dead a long time, thousands of years, and yet we still learn important lessons from the example that he left behind. And we want to think about some of those things as we study together this morning. What does his lesson speak to us today? We appreciate you for being here. Before we get into that study, we'll stop just for a minute to, to thank you all for coming. We have a beautiful Lord's Day. Uh, we certainly see the power of God's creative work in nature all around us, uh, and we are in awe. And in that awe and respect, we join together this morning in this period of worship and, and study from His Word. We pray above all things else that He will be glorified by our worship this morning and that also we will be encouraged and edified and strengthened in spiritual things. Thank you for being here. Thanks to those who are visiting with us. Please come again when you can and ask any questions you have. Let's talk about Abel. He being dead, yet speaketh. What do we learn? Well, I believe that from Abel's example, one of the first and very simple observations that we could make is that God is constantly observing our lives. Some people have suggested that God is sort of like a master clockmaker and that he created the universe and then he just sort of wound it up and set it in motion and turned it loose and that he's uninvolved and non-participatory that he just lets it function after he created it 
and put it into existence and into operation that he hasn't had anything more to do with that from that time on. Well, I think that's obviously a very flawed understanding of what God did and continues to do. Uh, the story that we're studying this morning about Cain and Abel and the example that Abel gives us in that story, of course, happened shortly after God had done all that creation. God had done all that creative work, and Cain and Abel, uh, apparently the third and fourth human beings to ever live on planet Earth, God was very involved. He was intricately involved in what they were doing. Uh, he was aware and he cared about their action and their conduct. I believe that we could say the same thing about us today. Uh, God knows us. He knows the intricate details of our lives. And so sometimes when we're discouraged and, and, and maybe a little depressed, and maybe even when we have that feeling, no one knows and no one cares what I'm going through, we should stop for a minute to realize that God does know and God does care and is fully aware of all that's going on in our life. He is involved. He is aware. I don't know about you, but I find that to be a quite amazing thing. That the God of the universe, the one who has the power to speak and the universe come into existence, a being that great and almighty and powerful, cares about lowly me? about the insignificant, trivial affairs of my life? And yet the Bible clearly tells that he does. For you and me, he knows, he's aware, and he cares. That's an amazing thing. We should be thankful for it. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Oftentimes we use this verse to stress that if we sin, if we violate His law, God is aware of that. His eyes are in every place beholding the evil. Don't you dare think for a moment that you can live in sin and God not be aware of it. That you can do things that are wrong and He won't notice. His eyes are in every place beholding the evil. Maybe what we don't emphasize enough is that He's also observing the good. When we serve Him faithfully, when we do the right things, He knows, He sees, He's aware, and He appreciates and rewards us and blesses us when we do what is right. And so from that verse, we would say, yes, certainly, be afraid if you're doing evil. But on the other hand, be comforted if you are doing good. God is observing our lives. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Neither is there any creature that's not manifested in His sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Certainly we are not hidden from God. He is aware of our lives. He is observing. And so if we were just to make some quick observation about Abel and the very familiar episode of Cain and Abel that Trent read for us in our reading earlier from Genesis chapter 4, the first thing that we can say clearly is God is aware. God is observing our lives. But from that example, we would also conclude that valid faith requires obedience. This is a point that we make real often, and we have to stress and repeat it constantly, unfortunately, because some people, for some reason, have developed the idea that faith and obedience are two separate things. But all through the Scriptures, we see faith and obedience linked. In fact, if you really believe, the Bible teaches us that you must act upon what you know to be true. 
that faith is actually demonstrated by obedience. Faith and action are inseparable. Real faith, saving faith, valid faith, as we say, requires obedience. That should not be too hard to grasp. Let's say that I made the announcement this morning that there's a million dollars buried in my backyard. It's in an old coffee can, and it's buried somewhere in my backyard, and you are welcome to it, and I don't care if you can, you can dig up my whole yard until you find it. There's a million dollars buried in the can back there, and you can have it. It's yours if you want it. Just, you're welcome to come and search for it and have it when you find it. Now, two questions. First of all, do you believe me when I say that? Well, that'd be a, that'd be a pretty far-fetched tale, wouldn't it? be hard to believe that I had a million dollars to bury in a can in my backyard. But let's say you did believe it. What would you do? If you really believed it was there, if you really believed, you'd be out there instantly with a shovel digging, wouldn't you? Why not? If it's there and you're welcome to it, why wouldn't you do that? If you really believed it... Now, I understand you'd have to believe it, but if you did believe that it was so, you'd certainly go after it. It'd be ridiculous not to, right? In fact, it'd be hard for me to, if you're talking to me and I told you that and you say, okay, well, I believe you. I believe there's a million dollars back there. And then you don't show up this afternoon. You don't show up tomorrow. You don't show up the third day. You know what I'd say? I'd say, I don't think he believed me when I told him there was a million dollars in my backyard. He didn't believe me. He must not have believed me because he didn't act upon that information, right? Now, why would it be any different with God if we believe what he says, if we really believe the things that are taught in the word of God, then we would have to act upon them. Faith is demonstrated in obedience. Notice in the case of Abel, it says, by faith, Abel offered. Now, notice, it was faith in, on Abel's part that caused this action. But notice, that's a verb of action. He did something. He had faith, and so he did something. By faith, he offered a sacrifice to God. Faith in the Bible is always like that. It always leads people to do something. In, in James chapter 2, verse 18, James says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And James had it right. James would be on the winning side of that argument, wouldn't he? Because he would have a way to demonstrate. So you say you can demonstrate your faith without works? Well, I'd like to see you try it because James says, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. And I think James would be a lot more successful, don't you? Works of obedience would demonstrate faith. We're all familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, we're drawing that statement. He being dead yet speaketh from Hebrews chapter 11. We often call Hebrews 11 Faith's Hall of Fame. And in that, in that chapter, many people are mentioned for great faith. Abel is the first of those mentioned there. But others are mentioned. Noah is mentioned. By faith, Noah prepared an ark. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham went out not knowing whether he went. In verse 17, by faith, Abel, Abraham offered Isaac. Verse 23 and following, by faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 39, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. And that's just a sampling of what's there. You know Hebrews chapter 11. But it's interesting that it's all about faith. It's all about people who had faith. But in every instance, it tells what they did because they had faith. 
If Noah had had faith, but he didn't build the ark, would you say he really believed what God was warning him about? If Abraham said he believed God, but he refused to leave his homeland and go to that distant country, would you say he really believed in God? Or if he refused to offer Isaac, would you say, I don't think Abraham really believed what God was telling him. Or Moses, if he refused to do the work God had chosen him to do in leading the children of Israel out of uh, Egyptian bondage. Or what about the children of Israel when they entered the promised land? And God told them, march around the city of Jericho. Do it once each day for six days. On the seventh day, do it seven times. Shout, sound your trumpets, and the walls will fall down. I believe you, God. I believe that that, of course, is what's going to happen. But I'm not getting out of my tent. And I'm not doing that marching. Would the people of Israel have received that blessing without doing what God said? Obviously not. But in that great chapter of Hebrews 11, and again, we've just touched the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, there. In every instance, those who had faith acted upon that faith. And so we see from this very earliest example of Abel and right on through, faith, valid faith, requires obedience. It still does today. It's not enough for you to say you believe. You must act upon what you believe uh, in order to please God. We would say from the case of Abel that acceptable worship requires more than sincerity. Think about this for a minute. Uh, Cain and Abel, you know that story. You've known it since you were a child, the story of Cain and Abel. What was wrong with Cain's sacrifice, and why did God accept Abel's sacrifice? What was wrong with Cain? What was right with Abel? Well, let's talk about Cain first for a minute. Some people say that the problem with Cain was he just had a bad attitude. His heart wasn't right. In fact, they would say that his subsequent murder of his brother shows that he was a man who had a bad heart. And so the reason why God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice, because he, he didn't do it with, uh, with a sincere heart. He didn't have a good heart. And the murder of, uh, of Abel proves that. Well, actually, that's wrong. Notice what it says here. Abel offered to God a more excellent attitude. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sincerity of heart. Abel offered to God just a better disposition. His heart was in it. No. Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. What was wrong with Cain's and what was right with Abel's was the sacrifice itself, right? The text there suggests it wasn't about attitude of heart. In fact, there is nothing in the text there of Genesis chapter 4 that would, would give any hint of the fact that Cain had a bad attitude or that he wasn't sincere in his offering. Genesis 4 verse 3 says, In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to the Lord. There's nothing in that as we read it in English, and I'm made to understand there's nothing in that in the grammar of the original language that would suggest any uh, hint of a problem with Cain's attitude or sincerity in the offering that he made to God. Uh, it was an honest attempt to worship. You know what was wrong with Cain? The problem with Cain was, apparently he believed in 
the so-called right of substitution. I can substitute what I want. I can do what I want. I have the right to substitute. The the attitude that it really doesn't matter what you give as long as you give something. And God would be glad to receive it if you offer it. Just be sincere. That's a very common attitude in the world today, but it is not true. There wasn't any apparent uh, error in Cain's sincerity. The problem was with the sacrifice. The sacrifice wasn't by faith. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17 says, Therefore these boys had been told what God wanted, and Abel complied, and Cain did not. And that's what was wrong. We can't substitute. We've got to do what God says. We're not free to do it as we would please. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Think about that verse for a minute. We walk by faith and not by sight. What would sight be? Well, that would be what seems right to me, what appeals to me from a perspective of human wisdom, what I see. I see that. It make, to me, that's the way it should be. I see it that way. Now, we don't walk by human sight. We walk by faith. And faith is to believe God and do what God says. Abel walked by faith. We must walk by faith. John chapter 4, verse 24 says, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We've often commented that this verse suggests the two necessary components of acceptable worship. It's got to be in truth. You've got to do it right. But it's also got to be in spirit, right? But it's got to be both, both in spirit and in truth. We've got to worship God. And so, certainly, uh, as, as we see in so many other instances in the Bible, we learn from this very early example of Cain and Abel that acceptable worship requires more than just sincerity. It's got to be done as God said. Another point that we could draw from this famous example is that obedience, by contrast, condemns disobedience and often results in animosity and persecution. Think about that for a minute. In that text in Genesis 4, it says, Unto Cain and his offering God had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted, and if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Stop there for a minute. Upon the realization that God had not accepted his worship, Cain was angry. And God basically warned him here, you need to get that under control because if you don't, it's going to escalate to worse things. Well, he didn't. And it says, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Why would Cain kill Abel? Well, it's because Abel had been obedient. Cain had been disobedient. And there was a contrast. There was a contrast between the two. Abel's obedience made Cain's disobedience very clear. It was obvious. It stood out. And that's what provoked Cain's anger. What happens to us when we try to live right in a wicked world? At least that's what that should be our goal, right? Unfortunately, as we've documented time and time again, our world becomes increasingly corrupt ungodly and immoral therefore as we try to live right in the midst of a wicked world our our conduct is going to be increasingly more at contrast with the conduct of the world 
What can we expect when that happens? Well, we can expect that people will persecute us, that they will be angry with us, and that they could come after us. I'm not a prophet, and I can't predict things like a, like a Bible prophet could, but it's not hard to imagine that even in the fairly near future, as our society becomes increasingly more corrupt, and we continue to take a stand for biblical principles, when we, when we speak out against sins like homosexuality and abortion, we can expect that our obedience to the standards God has set in contrast to the wickedness of the world around us as it becomes increasingly more and more wicked, they're going to hate us and they may even try to persecute us. Don't be surprised when that happens. Jesus said that that sort of thing will happen in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, beginning, Blessed are ye, he said, when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. I want you to notice something there in the way Jesus said that. You notice, blessed are you, if I get this to work here, uh, there, there it goes. Blessed are you when men shall revile you. No, Jesus didn't say, blessed are you if men revile you. He didn't say if, he said when. What does that imply? That implies it's to be expected, right? It's going to happen. And in our time and in our day, and as our world becomes more and more wicked, our obedience to the standards of God will bring about animosity and even persecution. That's not a new thing. That goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, right? That when we obey, and therefore set in contrast to those who disobey, we should expect this persecution to follow. Finally, let me suggest to you that one's influence extends beyond the grave. Did you notice this verb? He being dead yet speaketh. Now, we're not, we're not uh, too strong on English grammar necessarily, but we understand that verb to be a, a present tense verb, right? If you're, this is King James uh, English, but if you're reading a newer translation, instead of speaketh, which is the old King James, but it says speak. He being dead speaks. He speaks. Well, that's a present tense verb. He's still speaking. How's he speaking? He's been dead for thousands of years. How's he speaking? And of course, we understand that to mean that his example, his influence continues to tell us about God and what we should do to please God. He's still speaking to us. When we started out our lesson, we asked you to think about maybe someone in your life that you remember. They're dead now. But you strongly remember their example and their influence over you. Have you thought of someone like that? Well, that's the idea. We're talking about Abel. Now, none of us are ever going to attain to the status of Abel as a great Bible hero of faith. But you know, the fact of the matter is that at some point, likely not terribly far off in the future for some of us, but in reality, not very far off for even the youngest children in this assembly this morning, we're going to be dead. And all that will be left behind of us is our example and our influence. We're going to be dead. And we will leave some kind of influence for either good or bad. What will your influence be? It's going to linger. What will your influence be for good or for bad? In Matthew chapter 26, near the end of Jesus' life, you remember this episode, Matthew 26, beginning verse 6, when Jesus was in Bethany, there came to him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. 
But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? Jesus answered, In that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. And you know what? It is. Here we are 2,000 years after this event happened, we're still talking about the fact that this woman anointed Jesus unto his burial in this way. What about us? When we are dead and gone, some influence of ours will linger. Will it be good or bad? Abel's was obviously a positive, great example, and he stands as a hero of faith. What will our example be? In the bulletin today, when you take time to read the bulletin, in the article that I wrote in the, today's bulletin, it gives some suggestions about how our example and influence may linger and what people may say after we're dead and gone. Read that when you get a chance. There's a couple typos in it. You may, you may pick up on a couple typos. Uh, Cindy read it, uh, and the first thing she said, oh, you, you, you missed something. Uh, and so notice those typos in the article when you read it today. Uh, I think you'll see them, and I think you'll see what I meant when I misspelled a word or two there. But it does, it does, the typo does dramatically change the meaning if you don't catch, catch it, but I think that you will. But read that and think about the fact that when you're dead and gone, people are going to remember something about you. What will they remember? Well, here's an old story. In fact, one of the very oldest ones in the history of humankind, the story of Cain and Abel. And yet it still tells us powerful lessons about God and about what we should do in relationship to God in living our lives. What's your situation this morning? Are you right with God? Are you serving Him faithfully, doing His will in your life? To those who are not yet Christians, we would encourage you to make that decision without delay. There's nothing else in life that even comes close in comparison to importance. If you haven't obeyed the simple gospel plan of salvation, we urge you to do it. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sin. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away and not been faithful to your Lord, we beg you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song. Amen.